Welcome to the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast. This is Jose Solis. On today's episode, I talk with Sheila Callahan. Sheila is a playwright and screenwriter best known for her work in Shameless, United States of Terra, and Casual, for which she was nominated for a Golden Globe. She is also a founding member of the feminist advocacy group The Kilroys, who since 2014 have released The Kilroys List. Today, we speak to Sheila about the 2017 list and her new play, Not Water, currently running at Three-Legged Dog. Enjoy the show. Welcome, Sheila. Thank you so much for Thank doing you. this. I read Marie Claire describe you as a bi-coastal triple threat. <laughs> Can you explain <laughs> oh a little bit about what, what they mean by that? I don't know what the third thing is. I know uh, <laughs> it might have been film and TV and they cut those into half, but I would say playwright, screenwriter, and TV writer. That might be it. Or at the time, I don't think I was a mother, so that's pretty threatening. So that would have been one. And then um, I wasn't, yeah, I think that's probably what it was. <laughs> okay, that makes sense. Well, thank you again. Can you tell us a little bit about, we're, I'm assuming that many of our listeners know what the Kilroy's list is. Mm -hmm. Some of them don't. So can you tell us a little bit about what the Kilroy's is to, to begin with? Well, we're um, an activist group looking for parody on American stages. We're trying to get the numbers of uh, plays written by female and trans women up to at least 50 by simply introducing people to the plays that are out there that may have not been previously known about by uh, the theaters and other power structures that make such um, such decisions. And so we publish a list every year and do other actions, but uh, the most well-known one we have, and we've been doing it for three, four years, is we publish a list of um, underrepresented voices. This year it was uh, people of color, women and trans people of color. Previous years, uh, last year it was uh, p uh, women who, and trans women who, um, haven't aren't represented by uh agents and then prior to that i think that they were just women and trans women but the list the uh plays can't be uh, repeated on lists so it's new plays every year and it's usually ranges from 30 to 50 plays that have at least three or more recommendations by people uh professionals in the field who see or read 40 more 40 or more plays per year so people have a lot of experience with new plays who recommend these. And theater lovers, I think, have come to expect, uh, and theater journalists have come to expect the list every summer. Mm -hmm. So it's actually really hard to imagine that there was, four <laughs> years ago, this wasn't around. Can you talk a little bit about how you first realized there was such a big need for something like the Kilroys? When we formed the Kilroys, I don't think that we knew that there was a need for the Kilroys, but... It was a housewarming party that Anna Feinberg, who had just moved to um, Los Angeles at the time, she was having a housewarming party and she just basically invited everybody she knew who was living in L.A. And some of us didn't know each other that well at all. But the ones who she invited men and women and strangely, just the women showed up. <laughs> and, and when you get a bunch of and they were mostly playwrights and, and uh, when you get a bunch of women playwrights together, eventually when there's enough wine, they start screaming about how very few plays run by women are on stages now and uh so we were doing that and then you know we just got tired of hearing our own voices say the same things over and over again so we wondered if there was something we can do about it so that's we didn't realize how much of a need there was for an organization doing this until it came out because i don't think we ever the first list came out i don't think we ever expected it to be as uh, popular as it was or to be as relied upon year after year because we weren't doing it with the, that in mind. We weren't doing it to fill a void. We were doing it to basically have a reason to stop bitching, you know? <laughs> and, um, and, and everybody else 
you know, clicked into the idea that it was something that was needed, which was encouraging for sure. Right. And your resume, I, I, I would like to say that I've seen this. You have a personality where you take action because it was, it, correct me if I'm wrong, but you started contributing to uh, 13 playwrights for something similar, right? Like you oh, yeah. were. Yeah. yeah, 13 Playwrights is a similar action-based um, group where, but we were, it wasn't activism, but we were, we were new, we were playwrights who were at that point in a similar point in our careers. I mean, we had some who were a little more advanced, some were a little like more emerging, but um, we all were frustrated with the, the development cycle that we were just kind of caught in, like uh, theaters just putting us in a reading series, but have, with no intent on ever programming mm -hmm. our plays. And so we just wanted productions. We're playwrights. We want productions. We're not writing these plays for readings or for, you know, an audience, uh, for audience who comes in for free and is d delighted at the, you know, programming of the theater, you know, because of the diversity of voices in the reading series. You know, we want to be on stage because that's what we're writing for. And so um, we just staged our own place. That, right. So it's, we're a collective that was responding to a problem, I guess, is that your point? Yeah. Right. When you, yeah. when you first, decided that you wanted to become a playwright and you wanted to be a writer did you ever imagine yourself at any point being this figure who who helps nurture other writers well actually i don't <laughs> it's funny because i don't see my role in the killroys or or at 13p as my as nurturing other writers i see kind of keeping the field healthy which is a little different because i feel like with the field i care a lot about the art and i care about its its life and i feel like the less diverse the voices are in our field, the quicker it'll die. Because you just can't have art grow if it's the same point of view over and over and over again. And if the people who are interested in that point of view get old, getting older and older and spending more and more on tickets that leave out everybody, all the the perspectives of like most of, you know, the city that you're living in, the community that you're living in. So in that regard, it's more about, for me, it's more about the activism that I do is more about the trying to keep the field healthy and relevant. Um, but I, I have taught, I, ta I used to teach more frequently than I do now. And that, there I feel like uh, that's more nurturing voices because I feel like it's hard to know what your home voice is when you're busy being told what's going to make money. And I think like <laughs> some programs want you to make a life out of playwriting. And because they can't tell you that it's impossible, they don't want you to not show up. <laughs> you know, they don't want you to not pay the tuition. So they have to somehow find a way to not discourage you from continuing, even though there really isn't a way to make a living as a playwright. So I feel like it's harder for people to find their own voice if they're also trying to find out how not to starve. And so when I taught, I, I would encourage people to fuck up a lot and you know f find the find their five most important writers and they don't always have to be playwrights um who who they felt terrified and, and angered and excited by and those are the people they should continue to read and follow and maybe look at their career path and that kind of thing so the nurturing part for me comes from basically um introducing people to the things that they notice about what they notice you know what are the sources of emotion externally that that might also you might be able to absorb and synthesize into your own work so that's why i mean i see them slightly different um ways of supporting theater since so many of the plays selected for the killbirds list are unproduced i think some of them have been produced though right well i this year i, I wasn't on the selection committee it's not a selection committee but i wasn't on the committee that published the list this year because i was on a different committee but um, i'm pretty sure that um 
they are none of none of them have been produced or if they have it's only been one production but um i think it's i don't remember if we have a policy for every year but at least two years we have done exclusively unproduced plays so this might be produced once or unproduced can you talk a little bit then about that selection process when you are seeking for recommendations or where people bring up plays to to your circle what are you looking for do you have different themes that you're that are on your minds every year well, actually, we don't dis- we don't curate them at all. The thing that had been the deciding factor of who nominates or the nom the nominees were basically what our our um where our reach ended. So the first time we did this, we asked all the people who we knew to recommend, and we asked a whole bunch of recommenders, and for for their three to five favorite plays that year that were had only one production or zero productions by women. And, and, and trans women and like half the people that we reached out to didn't answer and also this was our only this is our sphere of influence like as much as far as we could reach what where we went you know and um the second year people self-nominated based on a criteria that we have on the website so that feel this they expanded so much and then we started hearing people talk about how it didn't uh, the list the nominations did not necessarily reflect a certain aesthetic of um, work necessarily because of who we asked and who and who reads. I mean, because you get like people in education and people who are doing selections for grants and people who are on artistic staff of theaters. They might not; those groups may not necessarily have access to more tra- untraditional, non-traditional theater structures. So we made a point of reaching out to those nominators too, people who have more exposure or experience with less um, codified structures in theater. And then this year it was all people of color. And so I'm assuming that the people who nominated have some exposure to the people that they nominated or at the very least exposure to the, their work in a regular way. Whereas I, uh, that probably is a different nominating pool than has been in the previous years. So it just basically depends on that. We don't theme the list. This year, I guess, was the most specific theme in that we were trying to make it all with people, women of color. So I guess that's the closest we got to a theme. Did you find, for instance, that this year, Perhaps because of the election, there was a higher number of submissions or anything like that. Did you see the election affect the submission process in any way? It, I don't know if it was the um, election or if it's just people are ready for the list now than they were, weren't were before. People are paying attention to the things that they write that are written by women in order to nominate them. Um, but also people are lobbying to get their plays put on the list by with friends and uh, in the industry and that kind of thing, which... You know, people that that I think is good and bad. Honestly, I I feel like the bad part is, of course, you're lobbying to get your work seen, so you could, you know, something that is, you know, designed to be merit merit based has become, you know, maybe more popularity based. But one thing that is a result of women advocating for themselves is that women are more comfortable advocating for themselves, which is something that I think is difficult when you're conditioned to just be a pleaser, when you're conditioned to thank people for the things that you're given, when you're conditioned to recognize the the slots in the world as uh, limited and you have a scarcity mentality and you have to fight the other women to get your piece in front of eyeballs. I feel like the more people who are comfortable, more women who are comfortable with um, asking people to read their stuff, the less problem we'll have in um, that feeling of being a walking apology and, and thanking thanking people for opportunities constantly that men don't necessarily have to apologize for or thank people for. Not to say that we shouldn't express gratitude, but of course you should. But I don't think that we should feel extra happy when mm. we get something that men just sort of naturally get, you know? 
Let me medium happy, <laughs> medium grateful, the right grateful. Not like you, you know, you saved me, you know, which unfortunately that's how I felt a bunch. So, <laughs> yeah, because there's also there's two things that you're doing, obviously, besides bringing this place to the attention of producers and mm. people who can actually make the place happen. You're also encouraging people to to see plays as, as, as literature and to appreciate them as literature. And I think that we're also lacking in female authors in general, like men. Yeah get all the popularity lists and all of that so can you talk a little bit about this process about obviously i mean we both love theater and there's nothing that compares to seeing a play right. and the plays are only really fully alive once they're on stage but can you talk a little bit about this about getting the words of this amazing female playwrights out to i, I believe there's a there was a, a university somewhere that was teaching a whole class right yeah. based on the list yeah that's pretty great that's amazing but there's so many plays on that list like you could do an entire courses per semester all the uh from 2014 and um i mean i guess it's good to i mean you can't get those plays on the stage unless you're reading them but honestly i don't know there's plays that might work so much better on the page because you can you can absorb them all you know, like you look at it, you understand the whole of the thing, and then you know it'll be more of the thing that you just read once you have people reading it and, and um, making it magical. But I find that the things that are the most challenging and interesting to me are impossible to read on the, because they can only be theater events, you know, they don't, they don't exist for the page. And those, I think, are the ones that it's helpful to have advocates on board early, because those are the ones that are going to be tossed aside much quicker you've got literary staffs who are reading tons and tons and tons of stuff and then they have to make a case for why that thing that play needs to be on stage at that theater and if you can't make that decision quickly based on how you feel reading a script immediately then you know that play is going to be at a disadvantage so often you find that more highly theatrical plays don't really have a home at the larger theaters i don't know if it's because of this but i'm sure this is a contributing factor so while encouraging people to read more plays you're also encouraging people to be more flexible with the way they approach non-traditional work i think just because that there's the more you read the the better you get at it you know <laughs> and uh and different kinds of theater also you get you get, your brain flexes a little bit in a different direction the the list probably can also help as some sort of calling card for playwrights who want to work in movies and television right because i'm thinking for instance about the uh, Moonlight that just won the Oscar and yeah. the play was actually never produced on any stage. Yeah. Have you seen any of that of some of the playwrights that have been featured in the list in the past going over and maybe leaving theater behind and moving over and working only on television or film? Well, there's, I mean, you do what you can in order to get noticed. And so often playwrights don't necessarily have agents when they start working in TV. So whatever stamp of approval you can receive on this coast or in this field in order to be recognized by folks over there. I mean, in my experience with uh, television executives and the like, they don't really know so much about theater. They're not clicked in or they're not terribly interested uh, in theater in so much as they're not patrons. But they are. Uh, they can identify the uh, markers of success. And if the list, being on the list is one of them, they're like, oh, somebody else has qualified you as being able to do this thing so i don't have to do that work you know <laughs> so you're you're in you know that kind of thing so any little bit of that helps any little bit of validation helps like a you know good review in the times helps being on the list helps having an agent sometimes helps but it's a little bit better to get professional accolade than it is to you know just be represented 
So, in okay. a way. Yeah, would, would you say there's a, a, a need for a kill rights list for television and film as well then? Well, the blacklist is what we based our um, model on, which is uh, a blacklist is for TV and film. Or, sorry, not TV, film. It's all the non-produced screenplays that the industry professionals recommend as being you know, worth a, a look that for whatever reason they haven't gotten on the right desks. And um, Jacob Leonard, I, I'm so sorry, I don't remember the man's name, who, who it was his... Uh, um, list, but at any rate, we modeled it after him, uh, after his model, and uh, it's a kind of great success the, in Hollywood too. That list, people talk about the scripts that are on the blacklist, and it becomes like, ooh, on the blacklist, whoa, <laughs> that means I gotta read it, you know. And it's kind of nice, you know. It's like nice because those scripts are not getting produced, and then every now and then, when a little an independent feature comes out that is on the blacklist, that's one of the blurbs on the uh, press is that as a blacklist script, so. So I think the Kill Rose is starting to work like that too. That's wonderful. I think yeah. the, the Madonna biopic was the number one There's a script on a blacklist last year. Was it year. really? Yeah. yeah. Is this getting shot? I don't know. What are we doing here? <laughs> Can we call it? <laughs> I don't. I don't think they've found anyone to play because it's like about like Madonna in the in the eighties when she was when she just arrived in New York. Oh man. Yeah. Is she is she producing it? I'm just kidding. Uh, no, I don't think she even approves of it. Oh. We'll see. Once they cast the right person for that, we'll see. Oh, yeah. Going back to you. <laughs> I I had a chance to see Not Water oh, a couple of going. weeks ago and it was I don't even know how to describe it. It was so I why don't you describe it? Can you tell us a little bit about what the uh, yeah, I mean, that? it's funny, whenever I try to talk about this piece, I have to talk about the process of the piece, because the piece became the process of the piece. But I started writing back in, uh, in 2015, when Katrina happened, I wrote a monologue about a girl sitting on a rooftop, watching her neighbors float by in the street, and decided I wanted to write a piece about uh, climate change and the ways we abuse water and the ways we use water. And, and uh, I didn't really have um, a firm idea of how I wanted to discuss it. But, um, but I knew that I wanted to uh, involve a piece on it somehow. I started working with my collaborator, who I, we had just finished a successful show, 3LD, called Dead City. It was my play, and Daniela Topol was my director for the play. And we just got some artists together and tried to make a show. And then we would make little pieces of the show, and then we'd be, great, now what? Oh, we got to make more. And then we'd make more. Great, now what? And we, we, we just explored every direction we could with the work and never quite landed on a framing structure because it was so big and we didn't we weren't able to handle it we had not found a way to handle it um and so the piece not water the first part there's three parts and the first part discusses the difficulty of making a piece about climate change when the conversation culturally about climate change keeps changing mm. but what also when the artists themselves keep changing and they can't necessarily hang on to it as it shifts and um so that's the part one and then part two um, the audience gets split into two spaces and you deal with uh, two different scenarios of a recent post-disaster moment and how uh, resources are used and not used in those cases. And then the, the third part is a uh, quiet time <laughs> where you reflect and then the, the play becomes the audience. So the those two creatures who created the first part and then you can imagine had participated in creating the second part disappear and they don't exist anymore and now the play is the audience so it goes from one type of storytelling to another type of storytelling right it felt a little bit like being like an amusement 
park mm-hmm. ride yeah. or something because you go on all these like ups and downs and then you're like okay i made it i deserve my margarita <laughs> <laughs> it's difficult to talk about i think because it's it's so infuriating to not know what you're supposed to walk out of a theater yeah. with. yeah <laughs> yeah exactly it made me think about it was very charlie kaufman-esque uh. in a way so do you have like different ways to approach you know like a, a screenplay or a play or a television script does your brain go into like different zones so to speak and did all of them come together maybe for not not water because i felt it was also very cinematic besides being also very you know very off the stage well well for this particular work we always knew we wanted to use multimedia because that's the experience that we had on dead city was it's an element that when incorporated early on in this in the conception of the project you can utilize it more theatrically instead of sort of inviting a uh, you know, a, a bunch of designers to come on a last minute, not at the conception level. And so that was always part of how we wanted to build this piece. Um, but this is incredibly different kind of piece than I normally do because I don't really do that kind of experiential immersive work normally. Um, uh, normally, right, pretty, tra- no, I wouldn't say traditionally structured plays, but you go in, you sit down, you watch a show, maybe you pee in the middle and then you get, uh, <laughs> and then you get angry or, or you, you know, or don't get angry. Maybe you're just bored the whole time and fall asleep. I don't know. But you have like, you're sitting and then you're standing and then you're out, <laughs> out the door. And this, this one, you're sitting, you're standing, you're lying down, your, your, your body is involved in the making of the show. And that for this particular work that's what we were interested in exploring is involving the audience as much as possible. So they felt they were part of the playbuilding experience, which I wouldn't do for anything. I mean, it worked for me for making a play about something that did, we never, we never had a grasp on because we as a culture don't necessarily have a grasp on what to do about it. So it felt right to have the audience feel like they were ping ponging a little bit because that's what we felt like when we were building it. I feel like uh, my brain doesn't go in that way. Normally my brain usually goes well, what am I trying to say and what's the best way to say it? So some of the things that I write as as TV shows, as pilots, I would never ever try to do on a, on the stage because there's some micro-ness to them. There's a quality of, um, there's a, like an intimacy and intimate gaze that wants to be solo, one-on-one, the way you watch television, or unless you're watching with a partner, but it's still intimate, that doesn't invite that sort of <laughs> crowd discomfort, you know, that theater often does. And um, that's a valuable thing for theater to have in a community experience and feeding off of each other. You're going to interpret it together, you know, but not everything works like that. And not everything that I want to write involves the audience in creative sense, you know. And, and so the things that I, the smallest, tiniest engagements, the story wants to be the smallest told version. Usually I'll save it for TV. And then if there's sort of like a poetic theme that feels like it has an answer at the end, like if you want a, a complete experience that you can encapsulate, that for me is where I go to, by why I would write a film. So I feel like I'm telling a finite story. I, I don't usually do it in theater or film, um, in TV. I'll find a, a screenplay to do it. So this is a very long-winded way of answering your question, but usually the kind of story I want to tell will dictate the way I want to tell it. And so... This felt explosive with no answers and involving the audience versus very um, small story I wrote about a woman um, in Brooklyn who had just gotten divorced, who was trying to raise her two children as an immigrant and uh, for, based on a book. And this never got to the, uh, what do you call it? I'm not an immigrant, obviously, but this never got to the TV stage. But at that point, this would be, we would have had people who have this experience helping to tell this story, but very small, detailed moment to moment life you know that you would get involved in 
and that was for TV. And I wouldn't have brought that to theater because since I'm the solo voice in theater, I can't tell that story. So I would have had to share that with writers. But um, theater, I also tend to save for my own experience because like, you know, I'm writing these things alone versus TV. You know, you have a writer's room. Hopefully, if you get that far, you want to include voices that reflect the voice of the people in the show. So you want, you, if I'm writing something that has diverse voices in the cast, you'd want diverse voices in the room. So, But that's not a requirement for my plays because I don't speak for anybody but myself in my plays. Right. I'm, I'm glad you mentioned about that lack of an ending, I guess, in your plays and, and television shows because I wanted to ask you, as, as a playwright who's also very active on Twitter, do you look forward then to, because I remember when I came out of Not Water, I was like, I have so many questions for her. <laughs> Do you look forward to getting questions or getting comments from audience members on, on Twitter? Well, you know, my Twitter uh, feed is mostly uh, shameless fans <laughs> right now. <laughs> <laughs> and um, I don't think that theater fans tend to engage that way with with uh, Twitter, at least not in my experience, because I don't have a mainstream um, following. And in, I mean, it might be different for somebody like Annie Baker or somebody with a little bit more, you know, theater um visibility but i do like questions if you if they're not coming from a place of rage like often people feel frustrated by the experience of watching something like not water because of the lack of answers and they feel like the playwright i've read this or heard this um critique of it i'm giving i'm not rejecting the idea of having a whole holistic point of view in the play but People often sit down to theater to feel like they're being taught something. <laughs> and um, I, I wanted to provide an experience where you invited yourself to learn, which is a little bit different. Like there's a lot of different things that you can take from this based on where you are, what your baggage is, what you want to listen to. And um, it's self-guided in a way. And the people who I want to talk with afterwards who have questions are the people who maybe were on board for that experience of figuring out what they want to get from this, like you would in an art gallery when you look at paintings, you know, it's on your terms. Mm -hmm. You can receive what the artist is delivering you, but you walk away with what you got, you know? You don't walk away going, well, he fucked up because <laughs> he didn't do it right. You know, it's so much, it's such a different way of <laughs> looking at work. But um, so those are the people I like to talk to afterwards, the people who were receiving it with some spirit. And fun. Maybe not the people who got angry that I didn't do it right. <laughs> <laughs> I don't blame you for that. Did they also ask you anything about the um, I Dream Genie movie? Oh, that's dead as far as I know. It's weird because it got a big, um, it got a lot of publicity for a little while because it, uh, like an exciting feminist playwright person decided to take on this. Or I didn't decide to. I got hired to. And, and before then, it had just been fancy fancy film people and I hadn't really had a film success and so they were taking a chance and I wrote what they wanted but like most things in a big studio it's not the creative side that makes the decisions it's the marketing side so could they market this to people could they sell it and I think what what I delivered them was a little more it was a little between kid and adult and that's hard to market too so the project seems to be quiet is that a project that you would consider moving then to something like the stage if you well, had the I opportunity? Yeah, it's not my, it's, uh, I don't own the rights. I liked what I wrote though. <laughs> I mean, that version, it, I wrote a pretty simple, I mean, it was pretty, it would be like a musical, a poppy musical, you know, because it was big and fun and colorful and had some 
big set pieces, like people flying on carpets and stuff. So I think it would be fun as like a musical, a big budget musical, but I don't own the, the rights or anything. So, so I, I think, yeah, unless they're out there listening and they want to give me the rights, <laughs> I'll go play with it somewhere else. But. Here's hoping, right? <laughs> Thank you so much. Oh, you're for welcome. Thanks for your awesome lovely having you. Thank you so much for joining us for today's episode of the Maximum Theater and Performance Podcast. If you have questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can find us on Twitter at Maximum. Sheila is at Sheila Kala, S-H-E-I-L-L-A-C-A-L-L-A. And I am at Jose Solis Mayen. If you enjoy the show, please leave a rating and review on iTunes or wherever you listen to podcasts. And we have merch. You can buy coffee mugs, tote bags, and stickers with your favorite Maximoisms. You can get to the store via Maximo.com. All proceeds go to helping the podcast improve our sound quality. Gracias. Theatrical Media.